listening to the Best Player Wins podcast, where we believe that winning is winning, no matter by how little or by how much. We are your hosts. I am Nate Endries, alongside Jake Deemer. Jake, welcome back for week two, or I should say episode two, our draft breakdown. Yeah, I'm just happy that we got the news today that in the year 2022, Oliver Perez is still pitching. The man who was the starter for the very first Pirates game that I ever went to way back in the day is somehow still pitching in the major leagues. It's a great day today. I was not aware. That's almost like a little preview to your league history fact of the week. That's a major league history fact of the week. So there you go to kick off our draft breakdown episode. Jake, without further ado, we're just going to jump right into it because I know everybody's waiting on this episode, probably excited to hear us break down the draft. Um, Let's kind of start a little bit more broad. And I know we spent a decent bit of time on this segment last year, but I kind of just went quick hitting thoughts on this. So first part of the draft breakdown is going to be just general strategies utilized by people in the league um, as far as what we can tell. For me, I kind of just used the first seven rounds. I was looking at, you know, how early draft capital was spent for the build of each team. Like when I say somebody had a heavy approach toward pitching or offense, I'm really talking about top heaviness, right? The the early picks in their draft. And that is including keepers, of course, since we did have quite a few keepers in the first seven rounds. I'll lead us off and say that as far as pitching heavy, I don't think that anybody, um, from my standpoint, went particularly heavy on starting pitcher this year, which was a change from the last couple years. Uh, what were your thoughts? Did you see anybody that you felt went pitching heavy? Uh, so I had a little bit of a different approach because I, when I was looking at these, I tried to exclude keepers. Uh, I know that sort of locks in some people to a certain uh, draft strategy because they had a lot of hitters or a lot of pitchers. Uh, but that's how I did it. Um, so I, I, I was also kind of looking at excluding the keepers. How did you spend similar to what you did? Just looking at how they spent more of their earlier picks as soon as they had them. Uh, so that really doesn't, if somebody was like, like for your, for your team, for example, I, I saw that you picked, you split your first two picks from mirrors and web. And then I didn't count your next uh, four or five picks. I don't remember how many keepers you had. And then I kind of picked it up right after that. Yeah, makes uh, sense. So I, yeah, so I saw a little bit differently than I think you did. Um, yeah, that's perfect. We don't want to be saying the same thing all the time. So I'm curious to hear what you've got. Yeah, so I mean, like I saw, I did see it a little bit differently because um, there was a range where uh, a lot of pitchers started to go. But yeah, that's kind of how I how I did my analysis. Okay. Did you notice any team in particular or teams in particular that you felt went pitching heavy? Well, I mean, I got I got to kind of lead off with my own because I I have one bench hitter and he's not even in the major leagues. Uh, I have with seven bench starting pitchers uh, out of the eight bench spots. Um, you were right there with me in those later rounds too, picking uh, from rounds twelve to sixteen. Uh, you picked all pitchers. Uh, there were a couple more. Uh, Scott, I thought went. And I'm not when I say pitchers, I'm not just counting starting pitchers. I'm also talking about relief pitchers. So what uh, Scott went about it when he had a bit of a split, but I'm counting relief pitchers in that where he drafted relievers, probably using more draft capital than anybody. 
I got Hader in the fourth round, uh, Class A in the eighth, Chapman in the tenth. Uh, so he used he used his capital not only on starting pitchers but also relief pitchers, which I'm actually coming around a little bit to that strategy because um, not fully because I still think relievers you're gonna have a lot of turnover there, but relievers we have to start four, and there are not there are generally not enough good difference making relievers to go around. So I'm actually starting to think, and this is something that I sort of talked myself into last year when I tried when I was trading for Liam Hendricks. Maybe like the the guys at the very top, the haters and Hendricks, they might be worth it because they're so much better than the replacement level reliever that you can get off waivers. But it's still a really volatile position overall just because of the turnover and uh Generally, we don't want the the bad closers. I'd really have the popular, not popular. I'd rather have the uh, the good setup men than the the crappy closers. But yeah, I I thought Scott kind of split. He he sort of split, but he went a little pitching heavy in a different way. Uh, JC, I think he sort of, um, I think he split. But I, I guess overall, I. The starting pitchers, more people I thought took shots on starting pitching, but kind of between rounds like 12 and 17, more of them sort of took shots there than maybe we have in previous years. So while there wasn't quite as much pitching that was taken at the very top, uh, I think we sort of made up for it in that range. Yeah, I was I was a big fan of how our draft played out. Um, I felt like the way that it panned out, it didn't necessarily force anybody to have to make super reaches for pitching, which I feel like we have had to do in the past as a league. You bring up Scott's team, I definitely agree with him taking Hader in the fourth, Classe in the eighth, Chapman in the tenth. You didn't even mention he started off his draft with Nola Barrios. So he definitely uh if you're you know considering the first ten rounds, I, I Definitely think it's a fair point to say that Scott spent a lot of early draft capital on pitchers. And to your point, not to take us on a tangent, I think I've seen it for longer than you have in terms of, I think, or I have thought that the top relievers, including Sparps, like the top guys, like last year it was Freddie Peralta, Luis Garcia. Um, I certainly think that they are worth a premium. They are very big difference makers because as you said 48 have to be started across the league it's just that for the for the top two in particular uh hater and Hendricks, you have to draft them like early fourth round or early fifth round like i think that they are worth a premium don't get me wrong like i traded for Hendricks in our dynasty league that we play and i think i paid a decent premium to get him it's just that when you're doing like a live draft and it's playing out that you have to build your whole team. I'm just not quite there yet to say that they're worth the ADP that you have to, ADP is the wrong word to use, the draft capital that you have to spend on them to get them. I totally think that they're worth trading for if you can get them. It's it's so subjective, right? Like I think that they're worth a premium, but I think they're worth slightly less than what you have to spend on them to draft them. I don't know where you're at with that, Jake. Yeah, I see what you're saying. It's definitely while you're in the draft room, it's hard to talk yourself into that. But I'm starting to think that maybe they are worth that early pick just because of how 
how much better they are than the replacement level reliever compared to other positions. It's almost like catcher where Salvador Perez is miles ahead of the, of the replacement level catcher. Well, Hader and Hendricks, since we have to start 48 relievers, they're so much better than the 49th reliever that you would have to start in their place. And you're not going to make that up elsewhere. Now, I think that makes them more valuable. Maybe guys like Class A. I like Class A a lot. Kimbrel's in a good spot. Uh, Rysel Iglesias is always good. I think that makes those tight, like the guys in that tier, I think that makes them better. But once you get beyond that, I think that the fact that we have holds in our league, that really flattens the reliever pool. Yep. Yep. So you don't, at that point, if you're not going to get the highest of the high-end guys, then at that point you may as well wait because there's so much turnover at the position that some of these guys that you might be reaching for, even though they are currently the closer, they're probably not worth it anyways, just because they, they might be bad pitchers. They might just be the closer. And it looks like, sorry, sorry to jump in. It looks like you and I basically embodied what you were just preaching there, which is, you grab one guy that you think you could be a diff- could be a difference maker. Maybe not to the Hater or Hendricks degree, but somebody that's good. In your case, you took Ranger Suarez, who I think is going to be a, a good spark. In my case, I took Ryan Presley, who I think was I can't. I'm not looking at the draft board right now, but I know he was at the least one of the very last what I would consider good closers available. And then I think both of us waited like another eight rounds before we drafted another reliever. So yeah. Yeah, I know me. I didn't didn't take another. Yeah, I didn't take another reliever until the nineteenth round. Or no, I guess you could count Matt. Matt I was going to say Matt Brash. Yeah, yeah, that'd be the sixteenth round. Uh, It looks like you didn't take one. Uh, It's Cortez. Cortez, I think think was my next. My next pick. But it looks like we had a we had a ton of relievers go kind of in that range where it was like the seventeenth round onward. There were a lot of that was when the majority of the relievers were taken. So there's not actually a whole lot between. It uh, looks like the last true reckon. I'm only going off the color codes. I'm not really looking at the fan tracks. Uh, I won't hold you to it. <laughs> so I might miss somebody, but it looks like um, between rounds 11 and 14, there were only three true relievers take. That's even if you want to count Aaron Ashby as a true reliever, which he's kind of a swing man. Uh, it looks like most of the relievers were taken, and there were, I guess there were only two more taken between uh, round 16 and uh, 11. So if you want to, it looks like most of the relievers kind of, we were, maybe the rest of the league sort of values them how we do, where you get a good guy, you get one good, good one, and you just wait, because it looks like that's what the majority of the teams did. Yeah, and I don't want to spoil too much, but that, that could be a point where a team like Scott's where like we're, you know, most people with him keeping five prospects coming into the year, I guess Kalenic maybe is not considered a prospect anymore, but five really young guys, maybe we wouldn't consider him a betting favorite to make playoffs, but considering how heavily he invested in his bullpen, like I, without looking at the rest of the league, I would, I would say he's pro he probably has far and away the best bullpen to start with, but I'm also not looking at everybody's roster right now. Anyway, let's not get too, let's not (laughs) take too much time talking about the general strategies. Let's move on to the next piece, which is the offense heavy approach. I did have a couple names uh, that stuck out to me here. Again, I looked at the first seven rounds, Sam, Brendan, and Nick were the three guys that stuck out to me because 
five of their first seven picks were spent on hitters. And again, I'm including keepers in my assessment. So Jake, I'll toss it to you for the flip side of excluding keepers. Did you see anybody really hitting offense really heavy? Yeah, I only I actually only had those three that you mentioned, and then the other one was Courtney because she had she spent four all on hitters. You said uh, first actually, four. I guess it was I, it was actually more than that. It was uh, let's see, one, two, three, four. Yeah, she spent her first six available picks, and I'm not counting her keepers in that. She had yep. Darvish, Wheeler, and Montan. Her first six picks on hitters. Her first pitcher that she drafted was Adam Wainwright in the 10th. The 40-year-old man. So I guess then that leaves everybody else that we haven't discussed yet, which I know you and I have a couple that we slightly disagree on just based on our definition of, or I guess the criteria that we were using. For people that I considered to use a balanced approach, again, only looking in the first seven rounds, I had you, me, JC, Courtney, Eddie, Scott, Jordan, Jerwin, and Mike. Um, Me, you, Courtney, Scott, Jerwin, and Mike took four hitters and three pitchers with our first seven picks. And then JC, Eddie, and Jordan took three hitters and four pitchers with their first seven picks. So do you have anything to add to that? Uh, No, I think that my team went more pitcher heavy. Um, A lot of the guys you mentioned, they went pretty balanced. There was a pretty nice split. Uh, I guess Eddie, maybe you could say he went more pitcher heavy. And I know I said, I already said Scott went more pitcher heavy. A little bit of a different way. But yeah, most of the guys I thought. uh, Agreed. Um, So let's jump into the, some of the more specific analysis with the draft. First one being, uh, what was your most surprising takeaway from draft day, Jake? Uh, So this, this first part is not my most surprising takeaway. And that is that more prospects were taken than ever before. The surprising takeaway for me is I like I actually feel okay about where they were taken. There was really nobody that I saw go other than a couple of the later guys that I thought, wow, that's really early. That's probably not going to pay. But like I feel okay about it. I think this might be like the year of the prospect. I know we were talking about last year that we kind of we'd reached for them in 2020. Didn't really work out in 2021 either. But I think this year might be the year that paying up for a prospect might actually pay off because teams look like they're being a little more aggressive than how they were in previous years. Now, there were still some picks that I don't think were will really have much impact. Uh, like, I don't really see Gabriel Moreno having a huge impact. Jack Leiter, I don't think we're going to see him this year, in which case I, I don't know that those were necessarily – good picks just because you're they're going to be shortening your bench potentially the entire year if you keep them. But majority of the other picks, uh, we're probably going to see them at some point this year, if not right away. And they could have a significant impact when they do show up. Yeah, we are going to actually talk more about prospects later in the episode, so I hope you saved some firepower for that. My most surprising takeaway was it's, I don't even want to say it's surprising, but it definitely spoke to me this year in a way that it hasn't before. It was that we as a group, as a league, have a very strong appetite for risk. Um, 
So we have plenty of commentary planned for specific draft picks this episode. We'll get to that here in a little bit, but I did want to put together a list of early draft picks that I, I thought were pretty risky relative to cost. And there's a different reason for each of these. But regardless, I thought that each of these picks for where they went was pretty risky. The first being, and this might surprise some people listening, the first pick that I thought was very risky, not risky, but like it was it was interesting, was Mike Trout going at the first pick of the second round. And that's because you heard me talk about it on last week's episode. Nick already created, or and I know he fixed it with his trade today, but he created a roster problem for himself with his second pick of the draft. There was no way he could start Mike Trout, Luis Robert, and Shohei Otani on offense. So I thought that that was pretty risky. Not going to talk too much about all of the other picks like I am with this one, but I did just want to explain that one because Mike Trout, I think he's a great pick at 13 overall. But for yeah, the no team, way he should have no way he should have fallen that far. But yeah, for the for the specific roster that he landed on, I thought that was a risky pick. The other guys, um, DJ LeMahieu with the sixth pick of the second round, Logan Webb with the tenth pick of the second round, Justin Verlander with the very next pick, the eleventh pick of the second round, Adalberto Mondesi with the tenth pick of the third round, Jacob Degrom going at six point oh three. Jazz Chisholm going the very next pick at 6.04. Just a list of guys that I thought demonstrated, like, even in just the first six rounds, we are willing to risk a lot as a league taking some of these picks. But I'll stop it there because we're going to start talking about some specific players, and we're going to specifically be talking about players that we thought were really great value. So first, from a redraft angle, Jake, who did you like as the biggest value draft pick? I'm going to say Joey Votto in the seventh. Uh, I, you know, we already know since my bold prediction uh, last, last week that I really do love Joey Votto this year. Um, and I, this, I know that this is earlier than we would normally see him go in a redraft league, but it's not that much earlier than we would see him go in a redraft league. And he's, I think that he is a good deal better than a lot of the picks that went before him in terms of just, just hitters. I would take him over uh, Jazz Chisholm, Cody Bellinger, uh, Willie Adamas. Uh, I, John, I know Jonathan India came after him, but I, I see him closer to somebody like Max Muncy or Kyle Schwarber. I even have him, I believe I have him ranked ahead of Max Muncy, and he went two rounds earlier. Jonathan India really actually likes... went two picks before Votto. Okay, I must have been looking at that the wrong way. Yeah, uh, Adamus and yeah, India so, flipped. Yeah, so I mean, I I like him. I mean, it doesn't matter. I like him better than Jonathan India, anyways. But yep, yep. I like Joey Votto a good deal, and I I think that just for in terms of redraft value, the value you can get out of him just for this year, he's a good deal better than the guys that than a lot of the guys that went ahead of him. Okay, Joey Votto is your pick. I went. This one is a little atypical for me, and I almost regret making the choice already because I know this is going to conflate his value in the manager who has him mind. He's probably going to use it to his advantage and sell him to a certain someone that loves trading like it's crack. Aaron Ashby was my pick, who went with the first pick of the 12th round. It's a weird choice for me because I would usually go with a guy 
that has been around the majors for a while, kind of like what you did with Joey Votto, and, and I thought went at a good value in our draft. But I do really like Ashby's potential based on his limited MLB track record. I believe he was up for a short stint at the end of last season. And I love, of course, the pitcher development track record of the organization that he's a part of with the Brewers. There's basically two reasons why I'm choosing Ashby for the biggest redraft value. One is a positive reason why I'm choosing him. The other is a negative that would disqualify him from me choosing him as my favorite potential keeper that that came about in this year's draft. The pro is that he is relief pitcher eligible, and I think that he can offer some big-time upside in that Milwaukee rotation this season, similar to like a Corbin Burns from a few years ago, or most recently, like this time last year, Freddie Peralta was a swing man in the Brewers rotation with a lot of upside if you know if they were going to give him a shot again. So he kind of reminds me of, I'm not saying he's going to necessarily break out the same way as those two, but I think the potential is certainly there. Now I'm comparing him to these lofty names. The reason why I did not necessarily consider him as one of the biggest potential keeper values of the draft is because I think that Nick took him just early enough that he'd have to be more than just pretty good to justify calling him a surefire keeper in the ninth round next year, which definitely is not a knock on his redraft value. I think Nick got him at a great spot, but I think it's just more for me a disqualifier for him being considered among my picks or my pick for the biggest potential keeper value from this year's live draft. Yeah, so I guess I have a couple thoughts here. I really like Aaron Ashby. So I, I, full disclosure, if he was available at my next pick where I took Jack Flaherty, I would have taken Aaron Ashby. I really like him a lot. But I have to disagree that he's going to be the best redraft value because we don't know. I guess I took center guard my next pick. Never mind. Uh, I have to disagree a little bit. Okay. So at this time last year, the Brewers rotation was a little more up in the air than it is now. Now, they, I think, believe they've already said they're going to go with a six-man rotation. So Ashby should start out of the gate. And he is much more talented than, Eric, than Lauer or Hauser. However, Ashby is the only one out of those guys that has experience in the bullpen. And he is left-handed. That, uh, he, the fact that he could be the fireman guy that can stretch multiple innings, I do think that whenever they do go to a five-man rotation, even if Ashby is excelling, he's probably the guy that gets moved back to the bullpen just because he has experience there and he is left-handed. Uh, I think that's going to handicap his redraft value a little bit. I could see him sort of in a Michael Kopech role this year, at least for the majority of the year. Um, so you think Kopech potentially still, it's a year too early for Ashby? I don't know if it's necessarily a year too early because, like I said, I would have taken him. I think that the upside is worth it. He's very talented. And like I said, and like you said, this is kind of where we were with Peralta last year, but I do think there are a little bit, there are some differences here that don't exactly work in Ashby's favor where he might, he might just get stuck in the bullpen temporarily and kind of just be more of a spot starter later in the year, rather than every turn through the rotation guy. But that is assuming that Lauer and Hauser are competent, which they're not, they're not elite pitchers by any stretch. They could very easily, uh, be bad and get booted from the rotation for Ashby. But 
there's just a couple barriers standing in his way that I don't know that I could put him ahead of a couple other sure things for uh, that we know are going to get playing time or are going to be starting for sure. But I, I like his, I, I do like Aaron Ashby a lot. I, he's definitely talented enough to be in, to be in the rotation. I just don't know if he'll get a consistent opportunity. Those are fair points. Those are definitely fair points. It'll be interesting to watch that situation play out this year. Now, I alluded to our next picks, or not next picks, but our next topic, which is biggest value from a potential keeper angle. And I'll lead us off with this one, Jake, because I actually picked a guy from your team. Uh, it was Gavin Lux. In the, at the end of the 20th round was when you picked him. And I'll be the first to admit that I'm not really a Gavin Lux guy. Even as a big dynasty player for the last number of years, he didn't really excite me despite at one point ranking as the number two overall fantasy prospect per RotoWire, which is like my preferred source for prospect research. But I did, or I, I should say, I do really love the breakthrough potential here and what is likely the best lineup in baseball for a guy who I just mentioned, he did have sky-high pedigree as a prospect. I tried to do something like kind of emulate I don't even want to say I did it in the moment because I was like, oh, I see Jake got Gavin Lux. I want to do the same thing here. But my thought process behind my pick right after this pick of Gavin Lux, I took Andrew Vaughn. So I was trying to do something similar, like kind of pick a post type guy that could break through this year in a great lineup. Um, But I like the chances of it all coming together for Gavin Lux a little bit more than for a guy like Andrew Vaughn. So... He was my pick here. Unfortunately for you, Jake, the one con here is that you kind of are counting on a breakthrough because he is your starting second baseman, the only second baseman that you roster. Yeah, I'm a I'm very thin at every hitter position, so they better all just not get hurt or be bad. But uh, yeah, the one big thing holding Gavin Lux back is he's terrible against lefties, which... We've seen before the Dodgers are not afraid of platoon. So if he's in a platoon situation, that's kind of game over for him with uh, being, I guess, fantasy relevant because he's not going to get enough playing time. But definitely that kind of sinks his breakout potential. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he has, pros- he has prospects pedigree. Feels like it was forever ago, even though he's not even, he hasn't even been around that long. But right. I, I'm not denying that the breakout potential could be there. I'm just a little more skeptical because he's uh, it's not very good against lefties, and the Dodgers have probably had plenty of bats that they could platoon him with. Uh, but my biggest keeper value, I, I originally went with uh, Tyler Glass now, um, but I actually flipped it with the news that recently came out about C.J. Abrams, who might be the top prospect who was drafted late enough that will play the whole year. Uh, now I don't know if he's going to be up. I don't know if there's any, been any news since this afternoon. Full disclosure, I have not looked. Uh, there's but, been no uh, CJ Abrams news yet. Yeah, but, yeah, but I saw that uh, thinking that he might be up to start the year, and um, if he is, that's that's a guy that his absolute ceiling is probably something what Trey Turner provides. Maybe his uh, he probably doesn't have quite that much. Not, not not Trey Turner right now. I'm not expecting that right out of the gate. But 
Trey Turner was pretty much an impact player right from when he arrived. And CJ Abrams, the skill set at least, isn't that far off from where he could kind of follow the same track, in which case we think about what Trey Turner was three years after he came up. I mean, pretty much within the first or second year, that's that's a top five round player, pretty consistently top three round player. I don't know that CJ Abrams will follow the same track, but he has the skill set to do so. And he's being drafted late enough that the keeper value is going to be, if he does, the keeper value is going to be great all three years. What round did, uh, was it Scott that took him? Yeah, Scott took him in the 24th round. Yeah, that's pretty late. <laughs> that is pretty late. <clears throat> I like that pick. There were, there were honestly a lot of, a lot of picks that I was considering. I, tr- when I, when I go with the, the biggest potential keeper value, I, I try to wait how late in the draft they went since there are obviously throughout the draft, a lot of names that I think could be big time keeper values. I think it's, it sounds like you did roughly the same by picking, we both picked a guy that went in the 20th round or later. Yeah, definitely. And then for, from a favorite sneaky value standpoint, I added this one in this year because I thought it would be pretty fun. And specifically because there was a guy that I wanted to pick for my favorite biggest value or my, my pick for biggest value from a redraft angle. Um, but if I added this category, I could talk about him anyway. And it's Steven Matz for me, my favorite sneaky value pick. He went with the seventh pick of the 23rd round to, I believe, Eddie's team. I'm quietly a very big advocate for Steven Matz this year, who is pitching in front of the best defense in Major League Baseball with the Cardinals in a good park against the weakest competition by a long shot in the National League Central Division, playing uh, with that great defense against talent-barren teams like the Pittsburgh Pirates, the Cincinnati Reds, and the Chicago Cubs. Matt's, I don't think that he's going to wow us with the way that he gets there, but I legitimately think that he will be no worse than a top 35 starting pitcher this season if he's able to stay healthy all year. Uh, who was your favorite sneaky value pick, or if you have anything to add to the Matt's pick? No, I agree with everything you're saying about Matt's. Um, I really, I mean, I like you said, he's not gonna he's not gonna blow anyone away, but he should for how late he went. You're getting someone that you should be able to reliably start just about every week. Uh, the guy that I went with was Alejandro Kirk from your team. Uh, um, there's a chance he could be the Blue Jays DH, and. From a fantasy perspective, I basically want as many shares of that lineup as I possibly can. Uh, and Kirk, if he's the DH, and even if he gets a couple of starts at catcher, he's probably going to be playing all the time. And that is a big deal for catchers because even a high points per game doesn't matter quite as much as playing all the time because you're going to get more points if you just stay in the lineup regardless of how you're doing. But Kirk has a skill set that should be good for our league. Uh, He walks quite a bit. He's able to get um, exit velocities are pretty good. He has a a very high upside, and he might be getting – he might be in the lineup all the time. So I think that he could – he definitely has the ability to be 
uh, not only a decent keeper, but also, dare I say, a top three catcher. Wow. That is aggressive. And he's fun to look at. The dude looks like a literal meatball because he's like five foot seven and like 230 pounds. He's definitely a fun player. <laughs> yeah, that is. Um, so those are our picks for biggest value. So from a redraft angle, Jake went with Joey Votto. I went with Aaron Ashby. From a potential keeper angle, I went with Gavin Lux. Jake went with CJ Abrams. From a, I guess, sneaky value standpoint, I went with Steven Matz. Jake went with Alejandro Kirk. So let's get into the good part, the, the part that everybody is probably waiting on, which is talking about specific teams, how we felt that the draft went for them. Let's kick it off in no other way than picking the team that we thought had the best overall draft. So excluding your own team, Jake, which roster would you prefer to have coming out of the draft? Uh, so my first pick is Sam. I don't think that this roster really has a whole lot of holes. Uh, I I still say it. I think this roster looks better if Juan Soto is on it instead of Garrett Cole. But you can't really complain too much about it. The pitching staff looks lights out. Uh, the Cole-Burns uh, duo at the top. Those are arguably the number one and number two pitchers in fantasy this year. So that's, that looks pretty good. Cease is a breakout pick. Everybody likes him. Evaldi, I know we've talked. He, we think that he's pretty, he's pretty undervalued in this league and he's definitely solid. Uh, while the offense is sort of lacking the high end standouts, it's pretty solid the whole way through. I'm a big Corey Seager fan this year. I think that he, the breakout in 2020 was sort of validated by how he finished the year. So I'm just kind of expecting big things from him this year. And I am a Josh Bell fan. I like where Castellanos landed. I don't think this lineup has really has any holes at all. Um, honorable mention, though, I do like the way that Jordan's team ended up. Uh, aside from a couple picks, um, I really like his offense. Uh, he's got multiple studs, Freeman, Simeon, Devers, Reynolds, and Tucker. Uh, they're all very high-end options. They all are guys that are uh, consistently getting over three points a game. Um, the pitching staff, he did a pretty good job piecing that together too. I know that he only came in with one with uh, one pitcher, and it wasn't even a surefire starter in Michael Kopech, who I will say I like a lot. Uh, but I do like Robbie Ray. I love Shane Planahan. I'm okay with Pablo Lopez. Is I love three. Pablo Lopez. Don't you I know you love Pablo. Pablo Lopez? I know you love Pablo Lopez. The relievers look pretty good too. I, I like Kitridge as a sneaky, uh, as a sneaky value pick at reliever. Uh, yeah, Jordan definitely did his research this year. Uh, looks pretty good, but I, I do prefer Sam's. I think that's just, I think a lot of it though is uh, looking back. I do think that he had just the way it played out significantly better capable than anyone else because he had all his early picks open and a lot of those, a lot of those later picks he was able to use as studs instead of uh, scrubs. Like some of the rest of us had to, had to pick. Yeah. Jordan did his research, hence the new team name, the walk Institute of research. Shout out to Jordan. Um, I went a very different route, very, very different route with my pick for best overall draft. And I think that this is going to, to shock Basically everybody. I picked Team Eminon, Scott's team. I know that this is crazy. 
but there wasn't really, and I, I agree that Sam has a strong roster, but I was looking for somebody that I could clearly see had separation from every, from everyone else. Last year, I think to the same question, I answered Mike and JC. I think I, I think I picked Mike, but I also gave a shout out to JC and my hunch was right because Mike ended up making the championship. I think that was actually one of my bold takes was that Mike or JC would make a championship appearance last year. Um, and I not not to bring up anyone's failures, but I think my other bold take was that Brendan would miss the playoffs for the first time ever based on what I was seeing with his day one roster. So I like to think that I have a decent eye for an exciting roster versus one that might not do so well. With Scott's, like I was scanning through the entire league, and like I said, nobody's was really calling my name. So the tiebreaker for me among the numerous teams that I, you know, you could probably justify picking was just which roster I am most excited to see pan out this season, which to me, it's easily Scott's lineup. Uh, he's boasting a lineup of JT Real Muto, Spencer Torkelson, Jonathan India, Wonder Franco, Bobby Witt Jr., Teoscar Hernandez, Jared Kalenic. Julio Rodriguez, Nolan Arenada, Arenada, Arenado, Aaron Nola, that's whose name I was looking at when I was reading Arenado's name, Josh Hader, Emmanuel Classe, not to mention, Jake, your pick for potential biggest keeper value, CJ Abrams, who is on his bench. Uh, Scott's roster is likely the highest risk reward in the league, but I think that the ceiling and the keeper potential of his team is literally sky high if this does end up being the year of the prospect that you alluded to earlier. Anything to add to my probably out of left field pick of Scott's team? Oh, I see what you're saying. His team is definitely, I think, out of everybody's. His team is the most fun. Uh, he basically got every every pick that uh, when you go into a draft thinking like, oh, I want this player because he's uh, – He's exciting and he's fun. Scott got basically every one of those players. So his yeah. team's going to be fun, but there is a very wide range of outcomes here because we haven't seen any of these guys at the major league level. We don't know how good they are. Highest risk reward, like I said. Like I said, Scott may end up having 12 keepers, on, like 12 legitimately very good keepers on his hand. He could, be the, he could be the guy that by pick three of the expansion draft next year, his keeper pool is locked. Like that's the ceiling of how I see this going for his team. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, he's got a lot of options if it if it pans out. Um, let's talk about everybody's team from top to bottom. We're going to start and do it in the exact order that we drafted in. So we're going to start with Sam's team going all the way down to Nick's team one through 12. We're going to talk and give you our best pick and our worst pick for each team. I didn't really because there's just so much to talk about. Didn't really include any analysis, but. Let's just kick it off with Sam's team. Best pick for me was Nick Castellanos at the last pick of the fourth round. How about for you, Jake? I also had Castellanos here. I thought he was a good deal better than a lot of the hitters that were also going in this range. That A couple of them went ahead of him, but I thought that he should have gone earlier. I think that you loved Castellanos in the third round last year, and he has a better situation this year. I think the ballpark is roughly the same for him, moving from Great American to Citizens Bank, going from Cincinnati to Philly. But the lineup is night and day better in in Philadelphia. 
Yeah, but Castellanos. This is this is like the this is the one spot for him that I was really hoping that he would he would land because you're right. This is a perfect spot for him. Yep. My worst pick for Sam's team, and I know that this was a Nate guy for a number of years, but I just I I don't like him that much anymore. I don't like where he went in our draft. It's Anthony Rizzo for me. Uh, last pick of the eighth round. Who did you have for Sam's worst pick? Uh, we're off to a good start because I had the same guy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't really like Anthony Rizzo. I I actually had him behind uh, a, a good deal of these other first basemen. I had him behind. Honestly, I had him behind Luke Voigt. I he was almost completely off my radar this year. No Luke uh, Voigt slander. I actually really like Luke Voigt this year. Yeah, I was just. I, he was just the first one that came. And I'd be high sure. CJ Crone if that, if that makes you feel better. Both guys I think are that are on later. my dynasty team, Voight and yeah. uh, CJ Crone. Yeah, I know that he's on the Yankees, and in theory, that short court should help him, but it, it didn't pan out last year. I don't really have any reason to believe it's going to pan out this year. I'll, honorable mention, though, uh, Garrett Cole in the first round, I would have much preferred Juan Soto on that roster. You prefer him on your, your roster? Or would you on Sam's roster, Cole? on my roster, it could have gone either way just because I don't need pitching. But on Sam's roster, I think he was in a position where he could have had the best overall, or he, he just should take the best overall player. And for for that this year, for me, it was very clearly Juan Soto. Well, Sam, you have some reflecting to do, clearly. <laughs> uh, Jake, let's move on to your team. With the picking out of the second slot, you can kick us off. Give me who you thought was the best pick of your draft. Uh, so I was trying to make it a priority to land Tyler Glass now, but I, I'm going to say my best pick was Patrick Sandoval on the 11th, just because I am a huge Patrick Sandoval fan. I try to get him everywhere this year. Uh, I think he is an up and coming. Uh, I don't maybe like a back end up and coming as like an SP two high end SP two guy, back end maybe SP one. Uh, I love the change up. It is one of the premier with pitches in the major leagues profile is bad fastball, but he did make a, did make a, uh, a change last year where he started using that less. Uh, and that sort of corresponded with his uh, very brief takeoff before the back injury, but I think he should be fine. Uh, kind of reminds me of like, a, like where we had Luis Castillo um, right before he broke out where he was, he had the really strong changeup. We weren't sure about the fastball, but we knew that he had that big whiff pitch and uh, some pretty good other secondaries to go with it. So Patrick Sandoval was, was my favorite pick. My pick for your best pick was the only pick that you made that I was jealous of um, because he was a guy that I wanted, and it was Matt Brash in the 16th round. Now, admittedly, I did not know a lot about Matt Brash um, even like two or three days before our draft. But when the news came out that he was making the opening day rotation for the Mariners, and I saw that he had relief pitcher eligibility, it was just a guy that I decided that I was going to target for our league. And there just comes a point where there's so many guys that you want, somebody's not going to make the cut, and our league is too savvy that somebody else would not scoop him up. And for me, that guy happened to be Brash, and that manager just happened to be you. So that was my favorite pick. It was the one pick that I was jealous of that I did not get to make. 
we'll see how it pans out. Like it could be, it could be a bust pick. Cause we don't, you know, we don't really know a lot about Matt Brash, but I, I do like Matt Brash, especially with his relief pitcher eligibility. Worst pick, Jake, who do you have for your worst pick? I have the pick that I regretted. Um, I kind of, I got caught here because you picked Lazardo right before Snow Syndergaard. Uh, I've never really been a huge Syndergaard fan and no way I thought I was coming out of this draft with him. Uh, his velocity has not been there this spring, even though the results have been. I know that his secondaries have looked good, but his fastball has been has basically topped out at 95 instead of sitting at 95. That's not really what you want. So I'm definitely going with Noah Syndergaard here. I regretted the pick almost immediately. Nothing to add. That was also my pick for your worst pick. I am completely out on Noah Syndergaard, potentially for the rest of his career. (laughs) Uh, Let's move on to my team, Demons in the Infield. I will lead us off, just like you did for your team, with who I thought was my best pick. And this wasn't even really like a oh, I'm so smart for picking this guy. It was just, to me, a, a very clear case of, like, um, this guy is just too good of a value to not take him at this point in the draft. And for me, it was Alex Wood with the third pick of the 15th round. Besides the one-down year in 2020, Alex Wood has been a very, very, very good pitcher for, th- like, three of the last four years. And... Most recently, he had a lot of success last year. He's pitching in one of the best pitching environments in Major League Baseball. There are a lot of guys that I really like in the Giants rotation. Um, But specifically, I loved Alex Wood this late in the draft. Who is your pick for my best pick? I went with Jesus Lazardo, the guy that I was going to take right before I got sniped, which he sniped me like four times in in this draft. I was very upset about that. Uh, but Luzardo was the one I was definitely most upset about. I was trying, I was going to, he was the other guy. I was like, oh, I'm going to make sure that I get Jesus Luzardo. I'll reach for him by the 12th round and everything will be great. But that didn't happen. Uh, velocity is way up. Uh, he's, he's leaning on his curveball a little more, which you really like to see because that is his, his better pitch. And uh, the Marlins, just have, they have a good track record with developing these guys. I, I really like the potential for Luzardo this year. Yeah, his, his fastball velocity is way up, actually. It is at, I can tell you in one second. I want to say it's 97. It is up 2.1 miles per hour from where he ended last year, which that doesn't, I guess, sound like a lot, but that's a, that, that is a lot for, for a starting pitcher. By the way, I... I I don't want to shout out my team too much, but I don't actually plan on talking about him for the rest of the episode. The leader in the entire league for gains in uh, velocity during spring training is Mitch Keller, who has gained 3.9 miles per hour. And not to throw not to throw cold water on that though, but his he's his velocity, his peak velocity, I believe, has been declining every start. So I'm worried that he can't sustain that. A man can dream. <laughs> I hope. Can... I hope he does. <laughs> yeah, it's been I, a while I, since we've had an elite pitcher in Pittsburgh. I was gonna say I would love that as a Pirates fan. I would love that as a fantasy owner. So, open for the best with that one. But 
Uh, my my pick for the worst pick of my draft, and this is definitely I didn't go the I don't think I went the route that you you went, which was like your favorite pick from your draft, your least favorite pick from your draft, because I actually like this pick that I made, but I don't think that the value was good. Like I I think that I drafted this guy at his potential ceiling, and it was Logan Webb with the tenth pick of the second round. So it's teammate of the guy that I draft or that I picked as my best pick. Um, but Logan Webb, I definitely, you've, you've talked a lot in the past about leaving yourself room for profit. I definitely did not leave myself probably any room for profit on this pick, but there wasn't really anybody else on the board at this time that I absolutely loved. So I figured why not take a shot on the guy that I, that I did really like as we discussed last week. Yeah. I would have taken Webb with my pick there because him and Verlander were the last two pitchers in that tier for me. And I knew that I would have. <laughs> It would have been a while since my next pick. My worst pick for you was, and this is just because I, I don't really like him. I don't like the profile here. Uh, it was Hunter Green. Um, you're not going to get hurt here because he's two because it's later. I just think that there were plenty of other shots to take. Uh, Green's, Green throws hard, but he also can't hit the ocean from the beach. Controls all over the place. And additionally, for how hard he throws, he gets hit very, very hard. And... Uh, control issue with him i guess for for me i actually would have preferred his well the ceiling is not quite as high um i would have preferred his teammate nick lodolo 200 green here but i I do think there were plenty of other uh shots to take other higher upside pitchers here um and definitely quite a few with a less risky profile than green yeah that's a that's a fair pick because i I don't want to say I felt meh about that pick, but in this run of five pitchers in a row that I took, I think I was least excited to have gotten Hunter Green. Not that I don't like him; like he's not really good. like I didn't I, mean, I didn't draft him with any plans to start him. I kind of drafted him to sit on my bench and see how the potential plays out. But definitely of this run of five pitchers that I took in a row, he was probably the one that I was least pumped up to get. Yeah, it's weird with Hunter Green, too, because he has the sort of profile that you would think would be, and I'm sure he is for a lot of people, it's just not for me, like, he should be a really exciting player, someone that you're really pumped about, like, he throws hard, he was his very high uh, prospect pedigree, but there's just, there's a, there's a lot of warts with him where it's, it's hard to look past. I mean, we're going to find out soon. I don't, I don't think that I would have drafted him had he not been named to the opening day rotation. That's the thing with Hunter Green is I I think we're gonna I think the book is going to be out on him very soon, and I just I guess wanted to get the first chance to see, you know, if it goes well for him, that's great, <laughs> that's great. Um, let's move on to the next team, which is JC's team, the NFTs. His best pick, in my opinion, which maybe is a surprising one, but I thought Josh Donaldson, with the ninth pick of the sixteenth round, was great value, or a position that we talked about on last week's episode as being very tough to find a good value in. Who was your best pick for JC? This one was tough because there were a couple guys that I wanted to talk about. Donaldson was one of them. I thought that that was um, definitely good value. He's, he's more talented than the majority of the players selected around him, I guess, is, or ahead of him, I guess I should say. Uh, Joe Ryan was another one I really liked. Um, I know that some people have said like his fastball is a little gimmicky, but uh, he's gained a couple miles an hour on it and 
nobody can seem to hit it. So like, who am I to poo-poo that? Uh, but the one that I ended up going with was Nick Lodolo, who I sort of alluded to in the last one. He kind of reminds me of a young Aaron Nola. Uh, the fastball is not great, but he's got some killer secondaries. Uh, he's going to probably be starting in the rotation. I don't remember if that was confirmed or not. Um, I believe he got I, I do. optioned. Oh, did he? Okay, we'll he disregard that. I'll, I'll flip to my other pick, then. Green <laughs> Detmers, who I like a lot, who I also like a lot. Um Flash some strike. I had it. I think I remember I had him last year for the parts where he was bad. Uh, but he really took a step forward last year. The minors strikeouts went way up. Uh, another one where he's got good secondaries. I think that the fastball could be a little bit better, but that might be wishful thinking. But I do like the curveball quite a bit. It's a big whiff pitch, and uh, I do like the potential there. You're a big secondary offerings kind of guy. See, normally the fastballs would be, I like the, the, the good fastball is a good foundation, but that's what I usually like to build on. I normally, I, I know that I've been picking up, picking guys that like, I've been saying, oh, their fastball is not that great, but they got a good, they got a lot of good secondaries. Normally it's the opposite for me. Normally I like to look at guys that have good fastballs because that's what you can build on. But some of these guys just have such outstanding secondary pitches that I can look past a little bit. I do believe that uh, I can't I, I can't vouch or I guess confirm this, but I, I think I read last year that Detmer's curveball was the best strikeout pitch, or I guess whiff pitch in the minor leagues before he made his debut. So, yeah, I mean, it. I will say though, it like compl- it pretty much completely disappeared in the majors when he got here. I mean, nothing really was working for him when he got to the majors, but. There, there is. That's why I'm kind of hoping that maybe if that rebounds and it plays more like we saw in the minors, that there's some there's some serious upside here. But yeah, that, I like Reed Detmers a lot. For worst pick on JC's team, I went with a guy that just doesn't do anything for me. Chris Flexen, Mariners starting pitcher with the fourth pick of the 13th round. I don't really have anything to to comment. It just I just don't really like him. Yeah, I, I have the same pick. I think he was only valuable last year because he won a lot of games, if I remember. But I don't really remember a whole lot about him because he's just so boring. Moving on to Brendan's team, Buxton Revenge Tour. Who do you got for Brendan's best pick of the draft? Uh, I picked Drew Rasmussen. Um, Rasmussen. Um, I like the spark value from here. It was between him and I. And I'll, I'll shout out another guy. Uh, Randall Gritchick could be a very valuable pick this year. There was I, he. He's a very he's very streaky. Strikes out a good deal, but he's in Colorado now, and that's going to help a lot. So I think at the nineteenth round, you're going to get um, you're going to you you should be able to get some mileage out of him for little to no cost. I picked the same. Uh, Drew Rat. I've always pronounced it Rasmussen. I don't actually know how it's pronounced, but I have no idea. He was my favorite pick of Brendan's team. (laughs) I like what he has to offer. He was actually a better control pitcher when the Rays moved him into the rotation than he was as a reliever. So I don't think that the Rays have any motivation to remove him from the rotation. So that means that he should give you a lot of volume with relief pitcher eligibility this year, which is great in points. And not to mention, I think he's a pretty good pitcher. Like, I don't I don't think that he has ace upside or SB2 upside, but I think 
that he can be, you know, say you stripped away the relief pitcher eligibility. I think that he could be, a, you know, a, a middle of the pack SP3, which if you add reliever eligibility, that is very, val- very valuable, you know, being able to start that in your bullpen. So I did really like the value for, their, for Brendan there. Not that he is my pick for best, not by a long shot, actually. Also not my pick for worst pick, but I did want to give a shout out to Brendan for taking Zach Plesak again this year. This time, 19 rounds later, getting him in the 21st round. So, great job, Brendan. You got a better value on Zach Plesak this year than you did last year. My worst pick for Brendan's team is just a guy that I have never been into, really. Maybe aside from like the year that he won MVP, because how can you not be into an MVP caliber player? But it's John Carlos Stanton. Just not the type of skill set that I'm into for our league scoring format. Uh, Brendan took him with the eighth pick of the sixth round. Who was your pick for Brendan's worst pick? Yeah, I also had Stanton. I thought this was a little a little early for him. Okay. The next team is Courtney, Team C Deemer. Uh, my best pick for her was a guy that I really liked this year, not to necessarily be like to step it up a notch from where he has already been producing, but to just continue. It's Jorge Polanco, who has second base and shortstop eligibility. Courtney got him with the sixth pick of the fifth round. Who is your best pick for Courtney's team? Uh, my favorite pick is Hunter Renfro. I like the move to Milwaukee a lot. He was valuable last year. Uh, he's not really going to be a superstar, but got him in the 21st round. and. There's plenty of value to be had there. I, I saw him drop. I was watching him at the top of the at the top of the board just continue to fall, and I'm thinking like, oh, this guy's going to be my utility bat. I was hoping I I almost picked him a couple rounds earlier than that, but when I was in my pitcher run, I almost broke it up. But I'm a big Hunter Renfro fan this year. Um, I he's like I said, he's not going to be a superstar, but he's going to be plenty serviceable starter or a high end utility. My worst pick for Courtney's team was Tyler O'Neill. Um, I'm just, again, not a, not a big fan of the profile. If, if I recall correctly, he has a decent bit of swing and miss in his game, and I don't necessarily think that the rest of the skill set caters to our scoring format to kind of make up for that swing and miss. Courtney took him in the ninth round. Who's your pick for her worst? Yeah, I had the same pick. She actually had a – his plate discipline is terrible. Um, strikeout to walk is really bad, so it, his floor is really low. Um, during the worst of times, he's not he's unplayable. Um, I know he had a he had a breakout year last year, but that was more so for rotisserie where he wasn't penalized for that. Um, so yeah, th- I, I think this was in our league. I don't think he can be counted on as someone who is a foundational part of your team. Whereas, would if you take him with the ninth round, he's probably going to have to be for you. Agreed. Next team is Eddie's team, Gone Forever. Um, my favorite pick of his was Steven Matz, as I mentioned earlier, but I just decided to go in a different direction for best pick because why not talk about more players? My pick was Max Meyer, who does have relief pitcher eligibility right now. I know he's not with the Marlins. He's in the minor leagues, but I definitely think that he has a decent chance of making his major league debut this year. If he does so as a starter, which I don't see why they wouldn't bring him up as a starter, and he could turn into a valuable SPARP if he finds success right away. 
if he does find success right away, I think Eddie got him late enough that he could be a valuable keeper. So that was my so, my pick for best. Just for to, I guess, to ask you to elaborate a little bit, where do you think that Max Meyer fits with the Marlins? Because I don't, I don't see a whole lot of. I guess I don't. I don't really see a path for him to start consistently outside of someone getting hurt for a very like being out for a while, which I don't think he can really count on. So who's their five? They have Alcantara, Pablo Lopez, Jesus Lazardo. Who are the other two in their rotation right now? I'm not Trevor looking. Rogers. Trevor Rogers is four. Uh, I want to say the fifth is is it Eliezer Hernandez? Is that the fifth? It I feel might. like I'm missing someone. It might be, but I want to say I read news this spring that they were moving on from him. I mean, he just pitched for them like a day ago. (laughs) Okay, so maybe that news was incorrect. But, I mean, has Eliezer Hernandez does not have a clean bill of health historically. Neither does Pablo Lopez, for that matter. Yeah, Pablo Lopez I know has a, like, sort of an ongoing shoulder issue that's been a thing for a couple of years. Eliezer Hernandez has pitched a lot less over the past few years than Pablo Lopez, though. Like, he has been hurt pretty much every year for the last three years for, for a long time. Like, not just minor things popping up here and there. That's why I say, like, I don't, I don't necessarily expect it to happen soon, but I... Like, put it this way. If Max Meyer is dominating in the Myers... Or, the Myers... The Miners... I don't see the Marlins as a team that's going to keep him down. Like, I don't really think that they have a lot to lose with bringing him up. There's also Edward Cabrera. Maybe they give him the nod over Meyer. So certainly may not work out the way that I think it could, but I like, of, of all pitchers that might debut this year that have high pedigree, Meyer is one of my favorites, to put it that way. I, I would think that um, don't forget they also have, I don't know how long he's going to be down but they also have Sixto Sanchez. Um, I heard that he might not be even healthy to pitch until like mid to late summer. Yeah, I, I he, he's <laughs> kind of a disaster. Right he's now, a mess. I'm, I'm just saying he's, he's there. He's there too. Yeah, but yeah. Do you you wouldn't happen to know if Myers on the forty man? Would you? I don't know off the top of my head. I do not, but I can quickly look it up. Yeah, because I know that uh, Cabrera is so. If somebody was going to get the first crack, see, I guess this is where I was coming from. I think that, by the way, yeah. So I'm thinking that if somebody does go down, Cabrera probably gets the first crack at it because he's just on the 40 man roster, whereas Meyer's not. Uh, But I, I, I agree with you. He had, I like Meyer's potential a lot more than Cabrera's. Well, who's your pick for, for Eddie's best of his draft? Uh, so I went with Steven Matz uh, largely for the reasons you said we already talked, we already talked about. Um, I did want to throw out Eduardo Rodriguez in the seventh, though. I thought that was also uh, good value relative to some of the pitchers that were going around him. He was the other keeper I was considering in the expansion draft. It was between him and Hanniger. And I just basically the tiebreaker for me was I have all of my keepers previous to that were early round picks. And I know Eduardo Rodriguez being a 12th round eligible player was it's not really early, but I I just kind of favored a guy who would give me a lot of leeway between my last keeper heading into the expansion and who I was going to take with the expansion. So 
that all that to say, I also really like Eduardo Rodriguez as your shout out. For Eddie's worst pick, I went with Cal Quantrill. He's one of the rare Sparp guys that I just did not like the value on at all. I wouldn't have even drafted. I like he's a guy that I wouldn't have drafted no matter how late he fell. I don't know who your pick was uh, for his. Man, worst. I thought there were. I thought there was an obvious one here. DJ Lemayhew in the second. Uh, I I didn't like this pick at all. I just um, I'm not a big believer in a rebound this year. Uh, it looked like he suffered maybe with the. I know that they the ball was really funky last year, but some of the some of the uh, I guess I don't know. I guess we can call them like the fake power guys, like Francisco Lindor and uh, Jeff McNeil sort of fell off and DJ LeMay, he was among them. He's never really been a big power guy. And uh, I don't know. It's just, he doesn't have the floor or the ceiling to be drafted here. In my opinion. Next team, which was the one that I picked for my favorite coming out of the draft team, Eminon Scott's team. I'll keep my best pick for him brief. It was CJ Abrams who you've already talked about in detail. So I'll throw it to you for your pick for Scott's best. Yeah, mine mine was uh, mine was also CJ Abrams. Okay, then we can move on. My worst pick for Scott's team was Jose Barrios. I know that you also do not like Jose Barrios. He's a fine pitcher, but he's just a guy that it's like he only ends up to me as a top twenty to 25 starting pitcher every year by way of volume. Like his skill set is just not what you would think of when you think of a top 20 pitcher. Like it's not really an exciting skill set. So for Scott to take him with the fifth pick of the second round, there were just other pitchers still on the board that I prefer their skill set to and think can potentially reach that volume that seems to be Barrios's trademark at this point. Who is your pick for his worst? Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that one. Uh, I'll also talk about. I thought Aaron Nola was drafted a little too early. I know that we. I know a lot of people love Nola bounce back, but that is based on his ERA estimators. He has a home run problem, and he's the Phillies defense behind him. I don't think that Babbitt is coming down quite as much as we think it is. Uh, but back to what you said about Barrios, like he's just so boring. Uh, maybe this is the pick that. Scott's team needs because he can't be too exciting. Maybe this is the pick that's going to ground the whole squad. It's, I just, I can't ever get pumped about Jose Barrios. I can't. <laughs> like he, I, I just, there's nothing exciting about him. And uh, now the last year, it looked like the, um, the peripheral started to slip a little bit. And like, I, I guess like I'll put it this way. I looked at my I've been I've been doing my rankings since um, December. And basically every time that I would go to update my starting pitcher rankings, I would bump Jose Barrios down a little bit to the point where I'm looking at my rankings saying this is stupid. I know that Jose Barrios is going to finish ahead of these guys, but I just couldn't bring myself to care enough to bring it to move him up. He's just too boring. Here's an example of a guy that you moved him behind despite being confident that he'll finish better than just curious. I feel confident. I feel confident enough that based on volume, 
total points wise, Jose Barrios is probably going to finish ahead of Shane McClain. Sugar Shane. But I, I, and I love, but I love Shane McClanahan's skill set. He's much more exciting than Jose Barrios. Fully expecting Barrios to finish ahead of him in total points. I would rather have Shane McClanahan. I mean, that's not necessarily wrong, though. You tend to prefer, or it sounds like you tend to prefer more impact, even if it means over a shorter period. There's nothing wrong yeah, I mean, with I, that, per se. Yeah, I guess it. I guess it also has to do with like, okay, so looking at my own team, I know we're getting off on a little bit of a tangent here, but I, we don't. I never talk about Jose Barrios, so let's let's go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, I guess like over a shorter span. I feel pretty confident that like maybe not over the whole year, but like Alex Cobb could probably give me for a short period of time, exactly what Jose Barrios. It's not going to last the whole season, but Alex Cobb is not going to be starting in my lineup every year, every week. Jose Barrios probably is going to be starting in someone's lineup every week. So I think I like, you could basically pick and choose which matchups you can have in your four and five, uh, your four, so your four and five pitcher slots. I think you could sort of stream there and basically equal Jose Barrios. Whereas you're drafting, but we are drafting the actual Jose Barrios as like your SP2. The other thing about Jose Barrios is I feel like every year he has one game that really like pulls him up in the, in the points leaders. Like he'll go like a nine inning complete game shutout. And then for the rest of the year, he's just, boring like you said <laughs> yeah so, you know he, it's like a complete game shutout with like eight hits seven strikeouts two walks it's like a boring complete game shutout. <laughs> we had to bring scott back down to earth a little bit after i said that i thought that he had the best draft um <laughs> let's get to jordan and let me tell you about a guy that I love, which you already know this, but my pit, my best, my best pick of Jordan's draft was Pablo Lopez with the ninth pick of the fifth round. I said on last week's episode that my bold take player edition is that Pablo Lopez is going to outscore Sandy Alcantara this year. I think that Pablo Lopez, I don't want to say he's unfairly tagged as an injury prone player but I think that he gets more flack than others because the fantasy community has been particularly vocal about picking on his injuries. I don't know if that makes sense, but I think the fantasy community can be hypocritical in ignoring certain players' injuries, but picking on other players for being injured. Like, for example... I think a lot of people in the fantasy community probably rank Zach Gallen ahead of Pablo Lopez pretty comfortably. But Zach Gallen has been just as hurt as Pablo Lopez over the past two years. And I think that Pablo Lopez might even be better than Zach Gallen when both are on the mound. It's, it's really hard to say that because Zach Gallen flashed ace upside if his team could just get him some wins. A couple years ago when we last saw him healthy over a long stretch... But that just goes to, it speaks to how highly I view Pablo Lopez's skill set if he can stay on the mound. Yeah, I mean, I like Pablo Lopez, but you you can't ignore that he has a, like, he has recurring shoulder problems. That's really scary. Eh. I'm throwing caution to the wind with Pablo you, Lopez. You don't I sound scared. <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not scared. I, 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 
Like I have Pablo Lopez. This pains me to say. I will admit, I was wrong for taking Pablo Lopez one pick before Sandy Alcantara in our dynasty startup draft last year. That was a dumb pick of me. But I have held him confidently. I've never tried to move him. I've never made him available. I'm confident moving forward with Pablo Lopez on my roster where I have him. You know, on, or I should say on which teams I have him. So yeah, I am not scared about his his injury history. Who's your pick, who's yeah. your best pick for for Jordan Walk? If you don't have anything else to add about about my guy Pablo, yeah, I'll try to not well, <laughs> not go on so many tangents this time. But I I already actually alluded to mine. It was Andrew Kittridge, which um, after Pete Fairbanks went down, looks like he is the uh, and I guess we can't really totally trust the race to stick to this, but. He looks like the clear guy for the saves, and uh, he was pretty good last year. And I think that um, at this point in the draft, uh, he was drafted after a couple guys, Camilo Duvall, for one, uh, Blake Trinan. I guess Blake Trinan was a keeper. I can't even use that one. But uh, Mark Melanson, I don't think Mark Melanson is really any good. Um, Chad Green, Garrett Whitlock. All, all guys that were drafted out of, at least around where Andrew Kittridge was. I think a Kittridge is quite a good bit better than the tier of relievers that he's around. And he's probably going to have sole ownership of the Rays closer job, which the Rays are a very good team. He should get plenty of chances. I think this could be a steal for how late he is. I agree with the skill set. Kittredge was very good last year. I wouldn't be as confident as you are about him having sole ownership of the closer role because the Rays are not a team that often divvy out permanent defined roles, especially in their bullpen. Yeah, no, that's fair. I, I would like to take one tangent, though, um, just so we get to talk about other favorite things. Jordan did, did his research, so I feel like I have to. Since he did his research, name two players that I really liked. The other one, I liked the boldness of taking Shane McClanahan in the third round because I am a huge Shane McClanahan fan. Really deep arsenal, throws really hard. I know that the quality of contact stuff is not what you want to see, but the stuff I really believe in it, deep repertoire. I think he has additional strikeout side. Uh, I don't know that he's going to get the volume, but Shane Bieber was able to um, was able to weather not having getting hit real hard and having a good. He, he had the arsenal where he could be successful. I think that Shane McClanahan's arsenal is is uh, absolutely wicked. Um, I I love watching. I just love I love watching him pitch. He's probably one of my favorite pitchers to actually watch, regardless of you know, fantasy impact and everything, but the arsenal is just so filthy. I, I, I love Shane I actually read something interesting recently um, among some pretty, what I consider to be smart fantasy analysts, that quality of contact is not really that useful of a metric for pitchers. I thought that was interesting, but the argument behind it is that the skill set in a pitcher as it relates to contact is just simply limiting contact. 
what happens when a hitter makes contact with a ball is more in the control of a hitter than really, you know, in any control of a pitcher. Like quality of contact is random as far as pitchers go. Like the hitter has let's let's say 95% of the control as it relates to quality of contact. I thought that was an interest like I don't I haven't really chewed on that a lot yet, but I thought that that was an interesting point made by some people that I consider to be pretty smart in the fantasy community. Yeah, I've heard that argument. I actually largely agree with it because, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Like the pitcher, after he throws the ball, it's out of his control, right? It it makes a lot of sense to me. The only pushback I would have is sometimes quality of contact has to do, I don't want to say with spin rate, but it has to do with how much your pitches actually move. Um, That's why like velocity is not everything in a fastball. Uh, We can, we've seen like, this has been Syndergaard's down. Um, his fastball gets hit really, really hard because it comes in, even though he throws it hard, it comes in really straight. And if you have a fastball like that, that doesn't move a whole lot, it's, it's just, it's going to be easier for hitters to square it up. So in that sense, I do think that it, it does have, it does come back to the pitcher a little bit, but largely I do agree that it's mostly out of their hands. Yep. Um, not to quickly brush off your response. It was thoughtful, but <laughs> we should probably try to limit our tangents so that we can get through the rest of the episode at this point, which <laughs> we still have three teams to talk about. First being Team Positivity, Jerwin's team. My uh, choice for best pick for him, even though he just got hurt, was Riley Green, who, if you don't know, is the top, now top, center field prospect or the Detroit Tigers. I think there was an argument to be made before between him and Spencer Torkelson, but now that Tork is going to be with the big league club, he is definitely their top guy in the minors system. He was probably actually going to make the team, or at least that's what I was hearing, before he broke his foot, which is not ideal. But I think if they were going to be willing to make uh, Riley Green part of their opening day roster, that there's no reason why he shouldn't debut this year once he heals up. And Jerwin took him pretty late, 10th pick of the 17th round. Who's your pick here, Jake? Uh, so I'm going to pivot on the spot. I was originally going to go with Tariq Skubal, but I think I'm going to go with the uh, his teammate, Casey Mize, uh, showing a little bit of a pitch mix change. Maybe it'll lead to some more whiffs. Uh, I think he's capable of volume regardless, which would help in this format. There you go. Uh, worst pick for Jerwin's team, without question, was Adalberto Mondesi, 10th pick of the third round. Yeah, I there there this is the only this is the this is the choice. This is the worst pick. The the choice. Um yes. and I don't I hate to put anybody on blast in a public way on the podcast that is. But I think that this was probably my least favorite pick of the entire draft. I don't know if you yeah. would go that far. Yeah, I think I think so just because I I don't like Alberto Mondesi at all. He's a steel specialist, and that's it. He doesn't do. He doesn't really do in terms of actually playing baseball. He doesn't really do a whole lot of other stuff well. I don't even think that he has been sporting an OBP north of three hundred for the past couple seasons, which is putrid in points format. Um, moving on to Big Money Mike, best pick in my opinion was Matt Chapman. Another case I talked about JC taking Josh Donaldson earlier. Um, of what I thought was a good find from a value standpoint 
at an otherwise very tough position position to find value in the draft. Uh, Matt Chapman got traded from the A's to the Blue Jays, which is a major uh, situation or environment improvement, both in terms of, I believe the park is better in Toronto than in Oakland, and the team, the lineup, is much better in Toronto than in Oakland. So I loved, I don't want to say loved, but I, I thought that it was a really solid pick by Mike here. Who's your pick? Yeah, I went with Matt Chapman too. Like you said, I, I, and I, I want as many shares of the Blue Jays lineup as possible. Um, even uh, Matt Chapman still needs to get the strikeouts under control, but if he can even get that down a little bit, he honestly he could have enough at bats and just accumulate enough runs in RBI to be uh, to be a middle of the pack third baseman, even if the strikeouts don't totally rebound. For Mike's worst pick, um, I thought that there were two candidates, but one comfortably ahead of the other. For me, it was Cody Bellinger in the sixth round. Yeah, I had the same thing. Was your who was your other candidate? Trevor Bauer in the eighth round. That's who I had too. Is I think I it's just too risky this early for me. Yeah, I, I would have on been a team that already has a lot of risky players on it. Right, right. That's that was kind of what stuck out to me. Like I would have been comfortable taking Trevor Bauer probably once we got into tenth round or later territory, just for the keeper value alone, even if he doesn't come back this year. But having just taken Cody Bellinger two rounds before having your team cornerstone Fernando Tatis being out for almost half the season. I don't necessarily know that this was a pick that Mike could afford to make. Uh, I know we're talking about Trevor Bauer when both of us chose Cody Bellinger, but since we both had a similar idea, just kind of expanding on that one a little bit. Last team, Nick's team, our defending reigning champion, Freedom All-Stars, as he is now rebranded. His best pick, in my opinion, was the guy that I planned on taking if during our fan tracks mid-draft blow up that the you know that caused the site to crash and us to be down for about 45 minutes i thought that you were going to take alex wood and i wasn't actually that upset about it because i think that this guy is nearly as good and tony disco as we like to call him anthony desclafani nick got him with the first pick of the 16th round i love me some giant starting pitchers so i thought that this was a great pick for nick yeah, I have the guy that he took right before him, Carlos Carrasco, uh, who apparently was pitching with shoulder injury, elbow injury, something. He was pitching was through something last year. And uh, while the results really haven't been there in the spring, but who cares about spring training results, really? Uh, velocity is back up. I, I like Carlos Carrasco in this range as a good upside play who we know can give you volume. Yep, so Jake's pick there is Carlos Carrasco. My worst pick for Nick's team, I alluded to it much earlier in the episode, but it was Mike Trout, who he took with the first pick of the second round. Not because of the value, not because of the player, but because of the roster situation, the roster burden that that left Nick with. I think that Nick should have been punished for this pick, but luckily he got Mike to bail him out. And not to say that that was an awful trade or anything like that, but I think <clears throat> I think that Nick, I don't really know how to phrase this. So the words that I'm going to choose are, I think that he deserved to be punished for this pick. I don't think that he should have been able to be bailed out and get market value from the roster logjam that he had so quickly. So that's why I made this my worst pick for Nick's team. Yeah, I hesitated to call. I guess I disagree a little bit just because I mean, at this early in the draft, 
I think you just take value and Nick trades so much that, you know, he's probably going to figure it out sooner rather than later, but oh, he figured I do, it out agree. Really I do agree with you. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I actually do agree with you there here though, that I'm surprised that his lack of leverage in this situation, knowing that it's like somebody trading with him has to know that this is, you know, like he's got to figure he's, he can't start all of them, you know? I'm surprised that the lack of leverage, I guess, didn't hurt him quite as much as he did. Because I thought that the trade that him and Mike made actually benefited both teams. Um, I'm actually a little surprised that Mike wasn't able to get a little bit more. But my worst pick was uh, Willie Adamas. And I really like Willie Adamas this year. But I did think this was a little early. I think a lot of people already had their shortstops at this point. I think you probably could have waited a little farther to pick him. Seventh round, you're kind of, you need him to to deliver on that. Um you need him to, to deliver on the uh, on the hype. Which I think he's fully capable of doing. I but you you need him to here. Yep, and we made mention of it, so I'll just formally bring it up. The first trade of the season was between our defending champ and our returning runner-up, Nick and Mike. Nick traded away Luis Robert and Corey Kluber, and in return got from Mike Ozzy Albies. Quick hitting thoughts, Jake. I know you said that you thought that it benefits both teams. You have anything to, I guess, add to that? No, like I said, I, I think it was perfectly even. I'm just surprised that Nick's lack of leverage in this situation wasn't penalizing more against him. Yeah, I agree. I was actually texting Nick when this happened just because he put Luis Robert on his trade block, mentioned that he needed a catcher and a second baseman. I have a catcher and a starting pitcher on my trade block and mark that I need a center fielder. So just touch base with him. And, you know, we quickly found out that it just wasn't in the cards right now. And then he texts me like two minutes later, already found a new home for Luis Robert. I said, that was fast. And sure enough, within five seconds, I see the banner going across my screen that Nick and Mike made a trade. and Didn't surprise me in the least bit. Um, I basically told Mike, like, tisk tisk, shame on you for not using leverage to your advantage. Like, you know that Nick has to sit one of these guys, but you still, I don't want to say let him get the upper hand, but you paid full market value when you probably could have squeezed a little bit more out of the orange. So, I, you it's know, just it, was, like a, it, was, it was a good trade. I just, I don't know. Is this a fun fact about this? Um, and I have no numbers to back this up, but I'm I'm pretty sure. Uh, which you know, take that for what you will. But I think that Nick and Mike have probably made more trades with each other than like any other pairing. And Nick's only been in the league one year. Oh yeah, I mean, again, want to choose my words carefully, but I think for Nick, trading with Mike is like going to the well. Like, don't get me wrong. I trade with Michael a decent bit too. Well, everybody trades with Mike a lot because Mike right, makes because the most he trades. trades. He, he trades probably, so much, he trades so often. But I yeah, think he like, probably he probably is the most traded person with just about everybody in the league. Yeah, yeah, that's probably accurate. But I think Nick particularly knows that nearly any trade idea that he has, if he presses the right buttons with Mike, like he can get it done. So, didn't really surprise me. Anyway, moving on to our Bold Predictions Team Edition segment. So last week we touched on 
specific players. Just like last year, though, we are going to talk about specific teams now in our draft breakdown episode. Give me a bold prediction for two separate teams in our league this season based on the results of our draft. Give me one at a time, Jake, and then I'll give you my first. We'll go. We'll trade our, our second with each other after that. All right, this is going to relate to what we just talked about, and I had to amend it because a trade already happened. But so by the time trades are over this year, I don't think we have a set deadline, but by the time the trade deadline happens, Mike will only have one of his current 26 players still on his roster. I believe that. I don't even know if that's bold. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I I originally, I have written down two, but I felt like I had to amend it because he already made a trade. (laughs) Um, My bold, my first bold prediction is that Scott will make the playoffs this season on the back of his farm hands. The, the youthful team. Give me your second bold prediction. All right, so for this one, I, it's another one we kind of already uh, alluded to, and that is that Sam will finish with the best combined record in LEL history. Uh, this, re- this combined record is currently her- held by me from last year, which is 31-6-1. and one. Uh, I didn't say that he was going to take the head-to-head record because, frankly, I don't think that will ever be broken. I can't see another team. What did Nick go like 16 and two or something crazy like that? Yeah. I can't see any of that ever happening again. Uh, but I do think the combined record, I think that Sam is going to have, is going to finish with the best combined record, besting the mark from last year. And he's going to have the best combined record in league history. Now you're making me feel like I didn't go bold enough because my second bold prediction is that Sam will lead the league in points scored during the regular season for the first time ever. Uh, Does not, not seem enough. as bold. Does not <laughs> seem as bold. Interleague rival predictions. Um, I don't know that we have like a to be determined like interleague rival matchup week this year. I didn't see it in the schedule. Did we take that out? Uh, yeah. So I think what, okay. So the way that I believe the schedule works this year is we have the division. All we have this first, this first week, which is based on the standings last year. Yep. Uh, then we have a section where I want to say it's five games where you play your divisional opponents once in the middle of this year is going to be sort of like, you know, I'm calling it interleague play where you, everybody plays the other divisions, the, the teams in the other division. Then we have a section where it's, it's back to divisional play. And then I believe the last week we have the cross division matchup again, which is based on standings. Got it. Got Normally it. we would have one, one kind of flex week in the middle, but the, the regular season is, uh, I'm gonna, that means I'm going to have to amend my prediction. Okay. I'm going to say best winning percentage for Sam. No, you know what? Screw the last week. He's going to still <laughs> have more wins. I'm going even bolder than I originally thought. Uh, so my, mine's just a prediction now. It's not even bold. <laughs> <laughs> Nonetheless, we can still predict what the standings are going to be. I set the line at after the first nine scoring periods of the season. So we are going to give you our predictions for what the divisional standings are going to look like through nine scoring periods. We'll start with the East Division, which is composed of Nick, Jake, Sam, JC, Brendan, and Scott. Jake, when I tell you that I spent probably 30 minutes looking at this, not knowing how I was going to divvy these standings out because this 
this division is loaded. I feel bad for you guys. Yeah, like, I felt it, the same way. Very, very clearly. I don't I don't want to say very clearly yet because we have no evidence to back it up in terms of how it's going to play out. But heading into the season, I think it's very obvious that this is the tougher division by a long shot. So without further ado, let's do this kind of in reverse. I'm going to start off by giving you who I think is going to be in sixth place in the East Division after nine weeks or after nine scoring periods. You can reveal your sixth place team and we'll go by that one at a time. After nine weeks, I have Brendan in sixth place. Uh, So I guess just before we start, six through two is a total pick for me. I don't, I shuffled this like six times and just went, okay, I'll just stick the, I, I just decided on an order when I, you know, like my lunch break was over and I had to actually start working. So there's no real, I guess, order. I know that that's not really what people probably want to hear, but there's not really an order here because these teams are just so close. Yeah. It, it, Scott, was, it was the same for me, two through five though, not to pick yeah, on Brendan, but. I just felt like it, there was a one, there was a very gray two through five, and then there was just Brendan's team who just, I don't know. I don't think it's a bad team. It's just that I like the other five teams so much. Yeah, I, I have Scott here just because of the wide range of outcomes. Um, I know that I, it's, I think it'd be unreasonable to expect all the prospects to hit right away. Maybe they get better um, as the season goes on, but I don't, I don't think it's, it's fair to expect all of them to sort of come out swinging right out of the gate. So that's just why I went with Scott here. My fifth place team is Jake. After nine scoring periods, I have Jake coming out in fifth place. Yeah, I, I have JC here. That's like I said, though, it's a pick em. Okay. I. My love for Scott ended here. He is my fourth place team coming out of the first nine scoring periods. Uh, So I have me here. Okay. At number three, I have JC. So I guess we're not too far off. I mean, we're not far off at all. That's the thing. Like this just like even ordering these teams doesn't even feel like I don't feel strongly about any of these picks because they're just... Like, like I said, it just feels like a pick in this division. Yeah, it is a very, very tough division. Yeah, Who's I have Brendan three? here. I have Brendan at three. Okay, that's probably, probably going to prove to be our biggest discrepancy. And I'm guessing that that means that we have the same one, too. My number two is Nick. I also have Nick at two. Which means that we both have Sam leading the East Division after the first nine scoring periods. Yeah, I will say I think there is a tier. I have Sam at one. I think there is like kind of like a teardrop here. Agreed. Agreed. I had Sam at one, and then it was pretty tough for me to pick. I landed relative, like the first team I landed on in terms of their ranking after Sam was Brendan at six, because I just like two through five so much. And I, again, don't think that Brendan's team is bad. I'm not making any predictions about Brendan missing playoffs this year like I did last year. It was just like, I just prefer the other teams because it's such a good division. Let's kick it over to the West Division. This one was easier for me to pick from, although not super easy, but easier. The West Division is composed of Mike, me, Courtney, Jerry, Jordan, and Eddie. 
Jake, kick us off with your pick for sixth place after the first nine scoring periods. Uh, I think this one's definitely going to be Mike, which is mostly because like half of his team isn't actually playing for maybe, I mean, some of them might not even be playing by the time we get to week nine, but he's missing a good deal of his lineup right now. Interestingly enough, I actually have Jerowin in sixth, mainly because I just I don't see a lot of difference makers in his lineup. He has, in terms of players that I can truly call with confidence a difference maker, he has Trey Turner, Lucas Giolito, Kevin Gosman, and that's probably where I would draw the line. He is a good player. Like, don't get me wrong. He has a, he has plenty more good players, but I'm talking about stars. I think that he might have the, the fewest stars on his roster than anyone in the league. That's also, probably I, a product of only keeping two players. Yeah, yeah, that is a, that is a good point. To Jerwin's, um, I don't want to say credit, but that's a fair point to make on Jerwin's behalf. He only came into the draft with two players. Um. The expansion draft, that is. My fifth place team is Mike, so I don't think that we're very off base or not in sync with each other there. Who is your fifth place team for the West Division? Yeah, I, I have Jarwin at five. Uh, he's also kind of, you, you say he only has a couple impact players. Well, his most impactful player, Jacob DeGrom, is going to be out for who knows how long. Right, right. And and I think Luis Castillo is a very impactful player too, but I, I was kind of looking at guys who I know are going to be contributing for him from the from the first day of the season because we are only looking at the first nine weeks here yeah and that well that's a big part of it too is like even even my team like i i put myself behind some of these other teams in the other division too with the with kind of the tiebreaker being well like i don't know jack larry right now i'm probably not going to have tyler glass now for the entire year i'm missing you know like i'm and those those have been replaced by waiver picks so you know, the team's probably not going to be as strong, especially right out of the gate. My fourth place team in the West Division is Courtney. I have Eddie here. I have Eddie at third place. I have Courtney at third place. <laughs> so we're flip flopping. You have uh, the, your three and four are flip flop from mine, and my five and six are flip flop from yours. Second place, I have my team. Ah, uh, this is where we uh, sync up because I do have your team in second here, which means that we both have a top two teams, one and two, the same for both divisions. Which you know that is Jordan for the West Division. We both have in first place. Yeah, Jordan. Jordan did his research. He's got it. He got the uh, got the studs to supplement the uh, the keepers that he came in with. I think he's in for a good year. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Let's finally move on to week one preview. And we're going to shake it up a little bit this year. We're not going to really do best matchup picks. It just seemed a little bit redundant and repetitive last year. So we're only going to do, for the most part, as far as like recurring, thing to watch for each week, and then our matchup predictions. So Jake, give me your thing to watch for opening week. Uh, so my thing to watch for is, will pitching dominate early again? Uh, last year... Offense was way down in April. It kicked back up over the summer, as it usually does. But it was more down in April than it usually was. And that 
maybe part partially due to the ball. Who knows? But really, uh, pitching was a lot was kind of what drove uh, was more like the driving force last year early on. Uh, I think the thing to watch for is will that kind of continue here? Because that's go- obviously that's going to benefit the teams that have uh, better pitchers. My thing to watch for is how much of the spring training helium is going to be real and stick for prospects like Spencer Torkelson, Bobby Witt Jr., Julio Rodriguez, as well as for some of the post-hype breakout candidates like Keston Hira, Jesus Lazardo, Mitch Keller. Um, I'm just interested to see how this potential that has been getting talked about with a lot of excitement in the fantasy community is going to play out for a wide range of these young players. Matchup predictions for week one. Of course, Jake and I are both starting with a clean slate this year, both of our records being zero and zero to start. The first matchup is in a a holy matrimony matchup between you and your wife, Jake, Jake's fantasy baseball team versus team C Deemer. By the way, you have got to get Courtney to pick a team name. She's trying to come up with like a Will Smith meme, but she has not decided on one yet. I can tell you with certainty a rebrand is coming. Okay. But I don't know when. Okay. Yeah, Team C Deemer is starting to wear. I have your team coming away with this one. Who's your pick? Um, picking Courtney here. Um, <laughs> I, my, I know my strategy this year. I'm going to have to do a lot of streaming. Uh, with pitchers, I don't have the staff that I have had in the past. So uh, I think the the hardest time to stream pitchers is week one when we don't know anything. <laughs> yep, yep, that's a good, that's a fair point. Second matchup is Demons in the infield, my team versus the NFTs, JC's team. I have JC winning this one. I'm going against you again. I have your team winning. All right. Third matchup, Team Eminon or Team No Name. Scott's team versus gone forever. Eddie's team. I'll let you lead us off with this one. I have Scott winning here. I have the same pick. Have to continue my Scott love. Have to have to pick him if I if I want to be a man of conviction anyway. Fourth matchup: Brendan versus Jordan Buxton Revenge Tour versus the Walk Institute of Research. I'm going to let you lead us off again here. Yeah, Jordan did his research, so he's going to he's going to win week one. They're like some kind of inside joke. I feel like you've said Jordan did his research at least six times this episode. He's done his research. What else would I say? <laughs> there has to be an inside joke. I also picked Jordan's team to win this win this first matchup. Uh, fifth matchup, weak pullout hitter versus team positivity, Sam versus Jerry. Would be surprised if we both didn't have the same pick here. I picked Sam to win. Well, I feel like I have to pick Sam because if I pick him to have the most wins in league history, I sort of have to you know, pick him to win. Yeah, you kind of set yourself up for me to question you anytime we do this segment and you don't pick Sam's team to win. Because you, yeah, be you only gave yourself wiggle room for him to lose like four total matchups due to the shortened season. And some of those might come against the league median. Yeah, that, I might have uh, might have stabbed myself. In the, <laughs> the last matchup of the week, we have a championship rematch. The Freedom All-Stars versus Big Money Mike. Nick versus Mike. I have Nick winning this first matchup. Mike's basically rolling out his B team because his team is either hurt or suspended. So, Nick. 
All right. Jake, I'm going to kick it to you to, to lead off our Around the League segment with your league history fact of the week. All right. So our league history fact of the week, I wanted to shout out our, uh, our graduating keepers this year. Uh, these guys were all drafted in 2019, which it's hard to believe that these guys are already leaving us and leaving our keeper pools. It doesn't feel like it was that long ago, but Bo Bichette drafted by Brendan. You Darvish drafted by Courtney. Pete Alonzo drafted by me. Raphael Devers drafted by Jerwin. I have no recollection of him ever being on Jerwin's team. Fernando Tatis drafted by Brendan. And Shane Bieber drafted by JC. Only one of these guys stayed in the same place the whole time. You Darvish. Know which one it was? It was you Darvish. You Darvish. Never, never left Courtney's team. Does that surprise you, Jake? No, you Darvish is it. That feels like a Courtney guy. Not only is it a Courtney guy, but Courtney doesn't really have the biggest trading reputation in the league. No, that that, that doesn't surprise me. But how about Brendan <laughs> drafting Bichette and Tatis? <laughs> Bichette and Tatis, the same draft, keeping neither one of them. I believe Brendan traded away Tatis for like Brad Peacock and one other pitcher. Marco Gonzalez. Hmm. Hmm. But you know what's even worse than that? Because I know that that's that's probably painful for Brendan to hear. But you know what's even worse than that? I don't know. What did if I get him? For I was for. No, no, no. Oh, I'm I talking about. I'm I'm ready to rag on myself here. Okay. I because I was before he got traded. We I, I was talking with Brendan to trade for Tatis, and uh, Andrew Benintendi was going to be the one. That was the main piece that was being sent back. If that wasn't bad enough, do you know who the piece was that just, I couldn't do it. I, I, I thought that I thought that Brendan asked about this guy. And I thought to myself, this is too much. You know who it was? You told me about this before, but I can't recall. Current Pittsburgh pirates, second baseman, former Red Sox infielder, Michael Chavis, Michael, Michael Chavis. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> oh man. Ouch. Yeah, that's tough. Couldn't do it. News and notes to wrap up this second episode that is probably running extremely long, but hey, you're welcome. Austin Meadows got traded from the Tampa Bay Rays to the Detroit Tigers for infielder Isaac Paredes. Jake, is this a boost, a hit, or a lateral move for Austin Meadows in terms of fantasy? Uh, I think this is the smallest of boosts because uh, the park factor is a little bit better. Uh, he's not going to be hurt quite as much by Comerica just because he's not really a spray hitter. He's sort of Deadpool. So um, it, it's not he's not going to be hurt quite as much. But there's also this. There, this also means he's probably not at risk of a platoon, which yep. could have happened thing. in Tampa. Yeah, it's clear that the Rays did not like Austin Meadows. They did not start him against lefties. They traded him away for, I don't want to call Isaac Paredes a no-name, but let's just say I'm surprised that they weren't able to get something better for him. Uh, yeah, the Rays, I don't, know. I don't think they liked him. Yeah, I think Austin Meadows, he get, he's like, I think he's talked about like in fantasy as like a better play, we see him sort of as a better player than he really is in real life because 
like he's he's bad against lefties and he's, he's not really he's not a good, good defender. defender. Yeah, he's not a good defender either. And he really only had that one good year. And like he doesn't even like the things that he's good at in fantasy, like they don't even really translate a whole lot to real life. Like he's he's got okay power and he doesn't really get on base a whole lot. So I, I think we just I think we for fantasy, I mean not even just for fantasy, just I think we think of him as a better baseball player than he actually is. Overrated. The Blue Jays and the Padres, well, this is dead news now as I'm reading it, are reportedly pursuing uh, a third base trade or a a trade for third baseman Jose Ramirez as the Cleveland Guardians continue to field offers for him. I sound like an idiot reading this out loud because I didn't catch it before we started recording. In case you didn't hear, Jose Ramirez signed a five-year, $124 million contract extension that now guarantees him $150 million when added to his current contract. So he will not be traded to the Blue Jays or the Padres. What I was going to ask you, Jake, of all the teams could, that could use him, where would you think the best landing spot would be? So instead, I'll ask... Compare what he is stuck with now in Cleveland to what could have been had he been traded to a team like the Blue Jays or the San Diego Padres. Uh, just sad, I guess. Uh. <laughs> yeah, sad. I was really pulling for a trade since I took him as third overall. That dream is dead now. The last piece of news and notes, we basically kicked off the show talking about this, but we're going to end the show the same way. It is an absolute prospect palooza this year with Julio Rodriguez, Bobby Witt Jr., Spencer Torkelson, Hunter Green, Matt Brash, Stephen Kwan. For some reason, I typed Jose Lowe, Josh Lowe, (laughs) uh, Bryson Stott, and other top 100 fantasy prospects making the opening day rosters for their teams, despite never playing at the major league level before. Jake, is this the year of the prospect in terms of impact at the major league level? I think it is not only because I, I do, I, I like a lot of the prospects that are coming up, but I mean, they're going to have way more chances to make impacts than we had before, just in terms of quantity of prospects. So they're, they're giving themselves way more chances to make, make an impact here with how many you're getting called up early. Agreed. Uh, last question that I have is related to this. Why does everyone get to have fun except O'Neill Cruz? Because uh, Bob Nutting is greedy and only cares about Seven Springs. Yeah. He sold Seven Springs, but he does only care about money. Yeah, well, maybe he wanted like a new elevator in his house or something. I don't know. <laughs> I hope that the Pirates call up Cruz and Ronzi Contreras soon. I'm just ready as a Pirates fan to not watch boring players who suck like Cole Tucker and Kevin Newman. Fun fact about Kevin Newman. I saw that, that I was looking back through our league history. That was uh, that's, that's actually LEL league champion Kevin Newman because that was Courtney's starting second baseman when she beat me in the championship game. Gross. Kevin, Kevin Newman. Nice. Yeah, gross. All right. Well, that wraps up our second episode, our draft breakdown. Um, 
next week you guys can look forward to our first guest host of the year we're going to be having nick on with the two of us with jake and i so yeah that will kick off our season of kind of rotating in you guys whether it be as a third host alongside jake and i or as a fill-in for either jake or myself um there are still a few spots open in our podcast hosting sign-up sheet would really appreciate if we got those spots filled up um but nonetheless we're looking forward to having nick on next week we're looking forward to being back next week to talk about actual baseball that counts in the regular season so until then uh for jake deemer i am nate Andrews, and we will talk to you guys next week e- you're-